As we come now before the very word of God, if you'd like to read along with me, we'll be in the book of the Revelation. Revelation chapter 12, so at the very end of your Bible in Revelation chapter 12. But before we read, would you please pray with me? Uh, Lord, we know that your word is like seed that's sown on the ground of many soils, and that some of that seed is plucked up by Satan like a bird that picks out the seed along the path. Lord, would you keep us and, and guard us from such things? Would you plant this seed down deep in us, cause it to remain in us, help us to hear now, to believe, and to bear much fruit to the honor of your great name? We ask this in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We want to take up this morning these first 12 verses in Revelation chapter 12. And so you can read along with me, or you can just listen. There's a lot of, of vivid images in this, so sometimes it lends itself well to just uh, closing your eyes and hearing and almost imagining what's going on. But whatever you do, let's hear this now together. Revelation chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb 
and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. This is the word of God. Oh, now, what are we doing here? Dropped into the middle of Revelation. We've just recently entered into this season of Advent, which we know is the anticipation of the coming of Jesus into the world around Christmas time. And during this time, we typically set our minds on, on the events of the little town of Bethlehem, right? But the text that we have here today is, well, not quite that. This is much bigger than Bethlehem. We are here in this text not because we are trying to find some fresh take on Christmas, okay? That the old stuff of Christmas is kind of getting boring and we got to scratch that itch for something new. We know that the old things of God are deep wells. And we will always find fresh water in those old deep wells that will satisfy our thirst. We return to those same wells again and again and again. We have no need to dig up something new. So it's not because we're trying to find something different. We are here for a couple of reasons. One is just because we've recently been in Genesis for quite some months, and this seemed like a, a fitting a bookend for Advent to just jump to the opposite end of the scriptures. We will still see here this ancient serpent who is still at work as the enemy, although here he's not working against Eve, but against another woman who's clothed, clothed with sun and is crowned with stars. And that's one reason. But the second one is just because this text gives us a fuller understanding to help us see all of what is happening in, around, and even beyond Christmas time. It gives us a look from a different vantage point. So, so we're familiar with the Christmas scene, aren't we? We often see the physical events of the tiny manger and the infant child who is at the center of Christmas. We see there the very Son of God who was born to save his people from sin. We want to see that. But there's more than just that going on. We cannot see, at least not typically, cannot see behind the veil into the spiritual realms. We only see what is physically happening, but not what's spiritually happening. But here we get that veil, that curtain sort of pulled back just a little bit to give us a glimpse of the full cosmic gravity of all of this. We know that Christmas on one hand really is what we sing about. The silent night, the holy night, where all is calm and all is bright. 
We need to sing about that. That's, that that's, that's true. But we rarely sing about what's also true on the opposite hand, that Christmas is also an unsettlingly unsilent night. So in these few weeks leading up to Christmas, we're going to pause and tune our ears to listen to that unsilence. We want in these weeks to look at these three prominent figures that we'll find in this scene behind the veil. We'll take a look at the dragon, at the woman, and at the child. Today, we'll just take up the first of those. Today, our focus is upon the dragon. Merry Christmas. The dragon in this text goes by many names here. He's called the Great Red Dragon, that ancient serpent, the devil, which means accuser, and Satan, which means adversary. And we're told a little bit about his appearance, at least as we see him here, what he looks like. And it's very strange and specific that this being has seven heads and ten horns. We don't know where those horns are. They're on the heads or scattered amongst the seven. But the seven heads also have seven diadems or crowns. And he also has a tail. It's difficult to discern how much of that appearance we're supposed to take literally, according to the text. We know that, that John has written the book of Revelation full of symbolism, you know, so does this creature actually have seven heads, or are the seven heads symbolic to depict some greater reality? The short answer is, I don't know, and we're not going to get bogged down by those questions. Whether it's a literal, literal or figurative, however he looks, we can see at least, we're meant to see him as a being who is grotesque and powerful and furious. And as we look at him, we don't want to fixate on this dragon. You know, some people get mesmerized by Satan. Look at him too often. That, that's not wise for us. But we also don't want to ignore him either. That would be equally foolish. We need to look at this awful Christmas figure right in the face, or the faces if they're seven, not so that we're going to gawk at him, but to see what he means to do. So our driving question today is, what is this dragon after? What is the dragon seeking here? I'll give us three things, and then we'll end. First, the dragon seeks to devour the child. Seeks to devour the child. It's at the end of verse 4. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Now to me, that is the most disturbing part of this whole scene in Revelation 12. So modern delivery rooms are now pretty sanitized, but they're also still pretty wild in the delivery room. 
There's lots of cries, shouts, blood, pain. You know, the saving grace of those rooms is at least a delivery room now is is typically filled with doctors and nurses or midwives, maybe family, people who are there to help. They're there to assist with the birth of the child. But in this delivery room, we also have the presence of another one, the presence of a great enemy. And he's not just tucked in the corner, sort of lurking in the shadows off to the side. He stands, the text says, stands before the woman. That is, in the most intimate place where a doctor would be. And he stands there just waiting. Now, that's probably not in your nativity scene at home, is it? We don't have a great red dragon in our nativity scene. But imagine that you did, okay? If you do a nativity scene, some people don't, and I suppose that's good and fine. But you set up a nativity scene, here's Mary, here's Joseph. We got our sheep, we got our donkeys, and the great red dragon. One of these things is not like the other. One of these things just doesn't belong, right? Something about that feels like it's, mi- it's mixing Christmas and Halloween. It almost seems like silly or comical if it weren't true. You know, we're used to the, the reality that we can see. And that's a true reality. But we now get that reality superimposed with a reality that's unseen that there is a great red dragon in the room. And it makes a whole lot of sense if you think about it, right? You know, if Satan really knows that Jesus is going to be born into the world, and he does, you know, Gabriel came and announced it to Mary, told of it to cousin, I'm sure Satan heard, he has ears, He's aware that the Christ child is coming. If he knows that he's coming, wouldn't you expect that Satan would show up, that he'd be there? at the birth. And we're told that the, that the reason the dragon comes here is not just to be a bystander of the birth. He's standing, waiting there for some particular reason. The text says, so that he might devour the child. That is, to eat him. Yuck. And that's a pretty gruesome, disgusting image, isn't it? So it's not just that the dragon's there at the manger scene. If we were able to see him there, we would see him with his mouth open, waiting to devour. It's not necessarily, literally, that he intends to to munch him up, right? At least it's describing some sort of greater reality that Satan seeks not just to disrupt Jesus, not even just to destroy Jesus, to devour him. That is, to consume him completely, to take all of Jesus into himself, to absorb him into himself. Satan is a consumer. Not just now, but always. 
You know the way he's talked about in 1 Peter 5? You recognize the thing? Satan prowls around like a lion who seeks what? Not to, not to roar at people. Not just a lion who seeks to claw and scratch at people. A lion who seeks to devour. And in this scene, Satan seeks to devour the child. That's the first thing he's after. Second thing the dragon seeks. The dragon seeks to defeat the angels. Seeks to defeat the angels. We see this described if you've got paragraph breaks in the second paragraph, starting in verse 7, that if we were to look through this, this telescope lens of the nativity that's on earth, if we were to peek through that, we would be able to see larger cosmic events of the heavens. That around the birth of the child Jesus, there's a, a great battle that has erupted. There's a description of Michael, the archangel, and the rest of his angels, and the dragon and the rest of his angels, and the two groups are locked in a heavenly war. That's a scope far greater, with atrocities far greater, than any world war we have ever known. This is a heavenly war here. Now, I need to make clear that all angels... All angels, that includes even the greatest of them, Michael and Satan included. These are spiritual beings who are created by God. They're not eternal, as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are eternal. Jesus is uncreated, but the angels are not. Angels are not eternal. Angels are also not mortal. That is, they don't have bodies as we do. They don't have bodies as Christ does when he becomes incarnate. And there's nothing in Scripture that tells us that angels can physically die. They don't have bodies that would die. Which means that this heavenly battle of angels is not a fight to the death. That's not the goal. It's a fight to defeat. A fight to crush. It's really a fight for power position. And because these angelic beings do not die, we have no idea what sort of weapons they might have used. I mean, sometimes we hear angels with sword, but, you know, sword and spear and even nuclear bomb or whatever mega thing we might imagine, those are not going to be effective to kill a spiritual being. We don't even know how this spiritual war actually looks. You know, the most famous battle scenes in movies like Lord of the Rings and Braveheart, that's probably just a small version. That's not even sufficient to describe what's probably happening here. We don't know exactly all the appearance of this, but we do know that this battle isn't just a quiet little chess match. They're not just having a clever battle of wits. This isn't Red Rover, Red Rover, send someone right over. This is an all-out war with some of the most powerful, created beings in the whole universe. So while on this side of the veil, in what we can see physically, we, we can hear the muffled cries of this newborn Jesus taking his first breath. If we could hear beyond the veil, that would be drown out by the deafening cries 
of myriads of angels in this clash of conflict with the dragon himself at the helm seeking to defeat the angels. That's the second. He seeks to defeat the angels. Third one. The dragon seeks to deceive the world. The dragon seeks to deceive the world. That's one of the names he's listed with in verse 9, the deceiver of the whole world. That's exactly in line with what Jesus will later say of him, calling him the, the, a liar and the father of lies. He is a deceiver. We know this already. We've seen him in the garden where, where he sought successfully to deceive Eve and Adam. But now at the stable, in the manger, he's seeking to deceive the whole world. And this text doesn't tell us exactly what he's deceiving about. You know, the word here that's translated as deceive just means to lead astray or to get to wander off, to set someone off course. You know, some people think Satan's goal and all that he does is just trying to get people to worship him. Satan's trying to get people to follow him. And if we think about it that way, that's, that's unimaginable that that would happen to anybody for some of us, right? You know, Satan worshiping in our minds. That, you know, that's only just for, you know, those wackos or those Wiccans or however we think about it. Well, I don't really know anyone who's like that. But let's not get ahead of ourselves here. Satan's most immediate goal for the world is not to change what we worship, is to change what we believe. That's what deception is. Trickery to try to change what one believes. And deceptions can be very big and dramatic, but they usually are very undramatic. Usually just a little bump. Just a little nudge to send us off in the wrong direction. The most effective deceptions of the dragon happen when we are unaware of them. They happen when Satan is still tucked away, hidden behind the veil, and we forget that he's even there, much less at work. And one of his greatest deceptions, especially around Christmas time, is to try to reduce us to sentimentality. It's one of his attempted deceptions to reduce us to sentimentality. You know, that sentimental feeling of nostalgia that's often interwoven into Christmas. It's in everything that we do, isn't it? And your sentimentality is in all the smells of, of cider and pine. It's in, it's in the music with the jingling bells and the choirs. It's in the movies that are made out of claymation and black and white. It's in the colors of green and red and gold. It's in the traditions that we might hold to on, on Christmas morning and Christmas Eve, that together all of these things swirling around Christmas bring a sort of wistfulness about the old days, sort of remembering about a longing for the way things once were. Now, there's not, nothing necessarily wrong with those things. 
I like traditions and cider and claymation movies. And we can be glad for those. We can even embrace them in a lot of ways. There can be a good place even for sentimental nostalgia. But the deception of the dragon is to reduce Christmas to that. If these sentimental things are the heartbeat of our Christmas, eventually that heartbeat will grow cold. And it will leave us feeling lost and empty. Have you ever felt that around this season of joy? You know, as Christians, we say that Jesus is the center of Christmas. And he is. But we, I, sometimes don't believe it. Even if we know it's true. We need reminding of the truth. Deep, profound, lasting truth that Jesus really is everything to us. Do not let yourself be deceived into settling for anything less than that. We know that, that even if we lose everything that feels like Christmas, that gives us a sense of that Christmassy feeling, if we lost every sprig of holly, every strand of tinsel, every sip of eggnog, if there were no gifts, no tree, no family, Christmas would still be here. Because Jesus is still here. Jesus is the real heart of Christmas. And his heart will never grow cold. Hit me in a soft spot there. That's, that's good news for us, isn't it? It's good news. We don't, we don't have to be naive about Christmas. We don't have to put on a fake smiley face for Christmas. We don't have to airbrush our reality to give ourselves a false sense of Christmas peace. We get to look at all that everything is with our eyes wide open. We can even look at our great enemy, this dragon, as he seeks to devour the child and defeat the angels and deceive the world. We know that there's a full-on raging war, and yet at the same time, we believe and even proclaim real peace because of what we know of what's happening behind the veil. You know, when the angels come and appear to the shepherds, we all know this scene, right? Behold, I bring you good tidings of, of great joy, which will be for all the people. And then suddenly there's a burst of angels, and they're all praising God. We, have, we all know the line, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace amongst those whom he is pleased, okay? All these angels who are proclaiming, announcing this abundant peace of God, this is not a heavenly choir of angels that announces this. Sometimes we think about them as a choir, singing it, but they're not a choir. In the text, they're described as a heavenly host of angels. And a host is often referenced to a group of warriors, 
or soldiers. You know, in the, in, the, in the pictures, maybe in some of our nativities, angels are often depicted with little halos and, and scrolls, usually big flowy dresses, long curly hair. I don't know what these angels actually look like or were wearing, but it's probably closer to depict them with helmets and swords bringing this good news to the shepherds. It's likely that, that at least some of these angels are some of the same angels who are part of this great heavenly war with the dragon and his angels. Perhaps at the moment that they appear to the shepherds, that war is happening at that very moment. It's full-on raging war, but this army of angels, this little battalion, takes a break from the battle now to visit just a bunch of shepherds in a field to say, I got good news for you. I got glad tidings for you. And the tidings aren't, hey, listen, don't worry, we're winning. Could have been. That's not what they say. They say, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And that's enough. You know, these angels know exactly how all of this is going to go. They know it. They know it uh, just as much as John knew it in 1 John chapter 3. This is our jogger verse for the month, and I want us to hold on to it. It's just part of a sentence, even. A short summary of the reason for Jesus' birth. This is in 1 John chapter 3 at the end of verse 8. Listen. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's the reason for Christmas. Jesus came not just to save his people, although he does that too, he wants that too, but not only that. Jesus didn't only come to save his people, he came to slay his enemy. He came to crush the head of the ancient serpent, to reclaim the stolen diadems off the dragon's horned heads. And the angels know this. Satan knows it too, actually, and he's mad about it. Because the text at the end, do you remember the last little line of the text we read? He's angry because he knows that his time is short. We're going to get to look at a little more of what that means next week. But for now, if you want a fuller picture of the nativity in these weeks, we need to put the great red dragon there. And when we see him there, he might have in one hand a fork to try to devour, a spear, or a sword in the other hand to try to defeat, and out of his mouth might be a river of lies flowing to try to deceive the world. But we should also see him with a plaque hung around his neck that just says, doomed. He will not win. The dragon will fall because Christ the King is here. Pray with me. 
Lord, uh, help us to believe this. Plant it deep in us, in an unshakable place, that we would stand firm against the lies of Satan, that this would produce a rejoicing in you, a peace in you. We know that because you've told us so, that in you we will have peace because you have overcome the world. Help us now to trust you more, that you would be honored and glorified above all. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.